In your corner, we are back at it. one 821 5900 Help at inyourcorner.ca. Lots of stuff to get through on the show today. Your emails will be coming in. And very shortly, we'll get to the five top mistakes your LTD lawyer should not make in handling your claim. But some do. Not these two fellas. Uh, we've got James here and Savan. Guys, time to uh, to take off for another another show. What do you got going on as far as the week that was, brother? Hey, John. Again, a very, very busy week. Let's start off from uh, an email that I received uh, this past week, it's a slip and fall case. So this lady uh, emails me the following. I'll read it to you. She says, hello, my mom told me that you can help me. I was wondering if someone had a minute or two discuss my slip and fall claim with me. I'd like to see if I have a case. I slipped on ice in March and broke my ankle. Ended up needing surgery and I've been off work since. There are more details, but these are the basics. I've suffered severely with claustrophobia and various other things and had many expenses uh, because of the break and uh, also with the help that I needed in coping with the mental aspects of my injury. There was one man who saw me laying on the sidewalk, but I don't know if he saw me fall. He was talking to me as I waited for my mom to help me. I have pictures of the sidewalk from the next day. Not sure if they are good or not. And then she includes her name and her number. Now, this is important because now that we're entering the summer season, we're getting a lot of phone calls from people who've been injured this past winter mm-hmm. season because of icy sidewalks, parking yep. lots, etc. Here's what you need to understand. Whenever we're dealing with a slip and fall or any accident, really, uh, and somebody contacts us for compensation to inquire about compensation, the analysis always starts from the question of who's at fault for this. Even when I did defense work working for an insurance company and I would be defending these kinds of claims, that would be the first thing I would be looking at. Who is at fault for this? So as soon as somebody says that they've slipped on ice, well, immediately there is a presumption that there was ice and, you know, it's winter, it's Canada, and courts have generally recognized that, you know, there's no obligation on people or or companies that own these properties, whether it's the city or a mall, whoever owns the property, there's no obligation to make sure that there is zero ice. It is Canada, you're going to have ice in the winter. That said... Under the applicable legislation, the Occupier's Liability Act, there is a provision that states that whoever owns or has care of the property, uh, they have an obligation to ensure that it's reasonably safe for people who are entering that property. So that applies to sidewalks, again, parking lots, etc. So whenever we're looking at a slip and fall case, again, be it a sidewalk or a parking lot or anywhere else, we are looking to see, uh, first of all, if you have pictures, uh, we would be looking to see is there salt uh, on the ground? Mm-hmm. Is there sand on the ground? Are we dealing with large patches of ice? Are we dealing with small patches here and there? Like, wh- wh- what is the state of the sidewalk, essentially? And pictures are great. Pictures that were taken contemporaneously, let's say a few minutes or even an hour or two later, they are great. A day later, they could be helpful, but there is a problem with that, obviously, because the temperatures could have changed. Perhaps, you know, after the fall was reported, the owners of the property or a winter maintenance company that's contracted to work and and make sure the area is clean, perhaps they came afterwards when they were notified of the fall, perhaps they'll come and they will, uh, uh, you know, make sure that the place is is serviced. So liability or negligence or the issue of fault is the first thing we are looking at. The second issue that we are looking at in these kinds of cases is the damage. What is the injury? Did you break a bone? Did you tear something? Did you not do either? Did you essentially suffer what we call a soft tissue injury, meaning you have a back strain, let's say, or a neck sprain, things like that. Now, that's not to say that if you have a break, suddenly that injury is that much more valuable than someone who has a back injury where there's no break, right? You can have somebody who has strained their back 
was making $50,000 working in a factory and now can't go back to work because now the person has chronic back, uh, uh, back issues. But in, in this case, with this lady, she broke her ankle. So we have an objective injury, meaning that we can see it on an x-ray. Yep. So the insurance company we're going to be dealing with down the road is not going to be arguing that there is no injury here. The question is going to be, what is the severity of the injury? Well, she had surgery. I can tell you that an, an, an ankle injury like this, if I was assessing it from a value standpoint, compensation standpoint, for the pain and suffering component of the claim, I would probably value it at anywhere between 30000 and maybe 50000 maybe even $60,000, depending, again, on the severity of the break. Right. Sometimes you have multiple breaks with the same joint. Uh, the, the, you know, any complications you may have had subsequently with respect to the surgery. But she has, you know, she says here also that, you know, this person uh, um, uh, was unable to go back to work. So now there is an income loss claim component. So you see, it's very, very important to understand the scope of damage, the scope of, of compensation this person may be entitled to. So you're talking about pain and suffering. You're talking about income loss. You're talking about out-of-pocket expenses. Maybe she needs medications or some kind of medical devices that she has to pay for. These are all things that we were going to have to claim for. Remember, also, this happened on a sidewalk, and this is absolutely crucial. So this ties us back to the first issue here. If you fell on a sidewalk because of ice. City property. City property. Under the Municipal Act, you have 10 days to notify the city. I really hope she did that because the exceptions to get around that rule are few and far between. So she did the right thing. Unfortunately, uh, you know, this happened in March. So if she didn't notify the city, it's going to be a problem. But hopefully she did. And we're going to be able to help her. Um, I want to add to that. So one thing I definitely want to add is if you have fallen on city property and you missed that 10-day window... Give the notice anyway. Give the notice today if you are, even if you're not sure you're going to bring a claim, you give the notice anyway so you preserve the claim down the road. Even if you're past that 10-day window, do it right away. The sooner you do it, the much more likely it is that if you do want to bring a claim down the road, you will be successful. And the other thing I want to add is whenever we're talking about a slip and fall, we're always concerned about how that person is going to be able to pay for treatment especially when there's a surgery involved, which is always going to require significant amount of rehabilitation and even more if there's further surgeries. What I will always do, and I know Savon does the same thing, when you have a case where there is clear liability, and I'm not sure if there is in this case, and there is an objective injury, which there certainly is, Mm -hmm. I will always approach the defendant and I will say, listen, we're arguing about how much you're going to pay, not what you're going to pay. And that total amount is going to be less if this person gets the help they need right away. So why don't you pay for the treatment now as opposed to paying it down the road right. and it's going to make the total pot smaller for nice. you. Works for both parties. Sometimes they'll even agree to do it, believe it or not. Not always, but it's worth a shot. And so for people that don't have extended health through their employer or a private plan, that's one thing we can do to help them. Coming up here, the five top mistakes your LTD lawyers should not make in handling your claim. That is on the way short break. You want to call the guys anytime and reach out, 1-855-821-5900, help at inyourcorner.ca. This is In Your Corner right here on Global News Radio. 1-855-821-5900 is the number to get a hold of Savan or James. Remember the team, help at inyourcorner.ca is the email address. Guys, moving right into this, the uh, five top mistakes your LTD lawyers should not make in handling your claim, but some do. Who wants first crack at the first one? I can take it. 
James is taking the first one. Number one is missing the most crucial deadline for starting your legal claim against the insurance company. Yeah, there's a few deadlines involved when we're talking about an LTD claim. The first is obviously submitting your application. But even though there are timelines in the policy and you do want to make sure that you abide by them, if you miss those timelines, there are ways around that. However, if you have applied for LTD benefits and you've been denied or you've been approved and then subsequently cut off, At whatever point they first tell you that your benefits are denied or cut off, whichever the case may be, you only have two years from that date in order to bring a legal claim. If you're outside of that two years, you're out of luck. There's nothing you can do. And once you miss that two-year window, your insurance company isn't going to do anything to help you. I promise you that. Within the two-year window, you can bring the legal claim, and there's no point in waiting on it. The longer you wait to do it, the longer it's going to take to resolve it. It's as simple as that. As soon as you know you have the ability to start a legal claim, you start the legal claim because that takes the power out of the insurance company's hands. They're no longer the sole arbiter of your fate. It now is in the court system, and so they know ultimately they don't have the final say. So you have to get it in within those two years. And even if they offer you an appeal and you do an appeal or you do two or three appeals, that doesn't change. The clock is ticking from the moment they first tell you. John, one of the concerns that I have with people when they contact us and they tell us, you know, we've been listening to you, to you and James on the radio, on TV, and yet we've gone to a lawyer before we heard of you, and that lawyer has been engaging the insurance company with appeals for our LTD claim. The, The first thing that jumps out at me is, obviously, if those lawyers are trying to do an appeal, you know, their opinion of how to handle the matter is vastly different than the way we approach these matters. But I've seen situations where these lawyers themselves, for whatever reason, uh, have have not taken heed of exactly what James just said, that two-year limitation period, Uh, which means that those lawyers, in engaging in those appeals, have themselves uh, let that two-year limitation period elapse. And so then, at that point, because the lawyer made that mistake, that individual now has a potential claim, a negligence claim against the lawyer. So again, that two-year limitation period, extremely, extremely important. If you are going to a lawyer who is telling you, let's try and appeal this, it's up to you if you want to stay with that lawyer. James and I would never, ever advise you to do that. It is a waste of time. You mentioned the show as well, In Your Corner, Sunday mornings, 8.30 on Global TV. If you want to catch that, we're talking the five top mistakes your LTD lawyer should not make in handling your claim. Number two is letting your communi- com- letting you communicate directly with your insurance company after you've retained them. That's one of the benefits of retaining you guys. That's exactly it. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, uh, that's, you, that's, that's custom. I mean, that's customary practice for insurance companies. In fact, when insurance companies know that there is a lawyer involved, they will often tell the claimant themselves, we can no longer talk to right. you. So again, boggles my mind when I have individuals calling us telling me that they have a lawyer and that lawyer has just let them communicate directly with the insurance company. It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me for two reasons. Number one, I want to be able to control the communications yeah. now that's going to the insurance company. My client could be saying something that is a mistake. It makes a message for case. you. It, it makes a message for me. Yep. I want to have full control. If you've retained me to help you, let me help you. I don't need you uh, in the middle of it. Secondly, and again, we've talked about, about this quite a lot, John, that you know, for most people, when they retain us, uh, they've done so because they've encountered the problem with the insurance company. And that problem is they've hit a wall, whether they've been denied a claim, whether there's something else that's happened, their stress levels and anxiety are going through the roof. So for us to take over the communication so that they can actually focus on their health and well-being, that is gold. 
I mean, that's one of the biggest things I think that we give our clients is this comfort to know you're only dealing with us. You no longer have to speak with any adjuster, any manager there at the insurance company. Focus on yourself. Speak with your doctors. Do what you need to do to get better. Let us handle the legal side. Number three, not explaining the legal claim process to you in detail and answering all of your questions, James. This is really, really critical. So the primary job for a lawyer is to provide legal advice. But that's really a very little value to someone that doesn't understand the process. So I can tell a client, this is what I think you should do. But it's the clients, it's up to the client to make that final decision. And if they don't understand what is behind my advice, right. how I get to that decision or that, um, that, that route, then it's not going to be very useful for them. Now, there, there are some clients that, you know, have complete trust and say, you know what, James, Whatever you advise is fine. Go ahead. I still want them to understand mm-hmm. what is happening. Yep. And I have other clients that really want to know every step of the way what's going on. And that's great. I love when I have clients that are engaged like that. So that's really a huge part of our job is breaking down every part of the process to make sure that the client isn't surprised. They're not surprised by what the other side is doing. They're not surprised by any part of the process. So if they have to go to examinations, I'm going to spend hours with them, making sure that they understand not only the types of questions that are going to come, but what the room is going to look like, what they're allowed to do while they're in there. I want them to be as comfortable with every stage of the process as they can. That starts from the moment we talk to the client on the phone for the first time. When they come in to meet us for the first time, they get a package that has not just the retainer agreement, but also all kinds of information about what lies ahead, information that is going to answer all kinds of questions. But then most critically, you have to be available to your clients to cover anything that isn't there. You have to make yourself available by phone or by email, however the client is most comfortable communicating with you. You have to, as a lawyer, make it a priority that you respond as quickly as you can to any questions or concerns that your client has. And that's something that every single one of us in our group does. So just to expand on the last point, this is important. Uh, We've had individuals, I've spoken to people who, again, were with other lawyers, and the experience they've described to me is that the lawyer will come over, they'll discuss everything, the lawyer will be very nice, and, you know, they'll explain as much as they can, they'll sign the person up, and then they'll never be able to reach that lawyer again. And even even the lawyer's assistant or clerk, they wouldn't be able to reach them uh, for for at least a few days. That can never happen. That should not happen. It certainly doesn't happen in our office. I think it's disrespectful. And frankly, I think that it undermines the trust that the individual has in their lawyer. So you want to make sure that you go to a lawyer and a law firm that doesn't do that. You want to make sure you have that accessibility that James spoke about. Uh, Because you're going to have times during that legal process where you're going to have extra questions. You need to get that information in order to have trust in the process and know that your case is being handled correctly. Taking a short pause here, we'll get to the uh, last two of the top five mistakes your LTD lawyer should not make in handling your uh, your claim. You'll want to reach out, 1-855-821-5900. Help at inyourcorner.ca. This is In Your Corner. Global News Radio. Number to reach out anytime, 1-855-821-5900. Help at inyourcorner.ca. Some of your emails are on the way here in just a a few moments. First, though, the top five mistakes your LTD lawyer should not make in handling your claim, but some do. Uh, The last two are this, not getting the necessary medical reports for your case to make sure your case is as strong as it possibly can be. So this is crucial as well. I mean, you have to understand insurance companies... Uh, they they analyze the case based on the medical reports that they have. And your lawyer needs to understand exactly what it is that the insurance company is looking at. Again, we spoke about this before, John. You can't simply have a napkin 
and a line on it from your doctor saying this person can't work. There has to be more detail. And oftentimes there is miscommunication between the doctors and the insurance companies. But I want to talk about something else as well, okay? We know that we need to get medical reports from our own treating doctors for the insurance company. But we actually do something a bit different, again, depending on each specific case. We will uh, hire our own experts to supplement what the treating doctors are saying and doing. So if I have, for example, an individual who is disabled because of of a psychiatric or psychological issue, maybe my client will have a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But if I would, if, if 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 I really want to bolster my client's position, I may end up going to another psychiatrist, independent, somebody who hasn't seen my client before. Right. Ask them to assess my client, review all of the records, and produce their own independent report. I may not do that in every case, and I'm going to be very very selective in the expert that I choose. In fact, the experts that we go to are people who have resumes that are just you know pages and pages long. They're very well rec- recognized uh, in, in the industry. And the reason we do that is because we want to show the insurance company that we are serious. We are serious with this battle. We will pay thousands of dollars of our own money. This is not our client that's paying for it. Our own money, the firm's money, in order to strengthen that client's case. And if we ever end up in court, and again, most, most cases do not see court, we settle uh, these cases in the vast majority of instances. But if we ever went to court, there will be no question in the judge's mind that on one side you have an insurance doctor, on the other side you have not only the person's treating physicians, but you're going to have experts who are top in their field that we have assembled to put all that firepower against the insurance company to show the judge that our client, in fact, has a legitimate disability. We get emails sometimes from listeners who are skeptical of the process and you know, think that we're trying to game the system. And so, you know, they might hear what Savan's saying about hiring an expert to bolster the case, as though we're, you know, just you know, finding anyone who's gonna give us whatever report is going to look good on paper. That's the furthest thing from the truth. We we have a roster of doctors that are seen as the best in their field. And it's critical for a couple of reasons. These are doctors who are not just going to rubber stamp a report for us. And I can tell you in many cases where I've thought I had a legitimate claim, the doctor said, hold on a minute. Yeah, no. There's something that you're not seeing here. And they'll call and they'll tell me that. And they'll say, you don't want my report. And I'll say, you're right, I don't. Thank you. And that's a case that you're going to get rid of pretty quickly. So, you know, if the doctor finds something that isn't kosher, they're going to let us know. We want them to be independent. I want to know once I get that report that I am solid and that the other side knows that as well. That's why you don't want to use doctors that are seen as being all on one side or all on the other. The other really critical point about using these doctors, these doctors that are leaders in their field, is that it gives you as a client access to opinions from these doctors that you may not have access to otherwise. And so you're going to go and you're going to get assessed by this doctor. They're going to look at your entire medical file, your entire treatment file, and they're going to examine you for however long they need to. And then they're going to write a 15 or 20 page report. Now we're going to use that report certainly for the legal process, but we're also going to send you two copies of that report. One copy is for yourself so that you have that on file and you can take a look at it whenever you want. But the other copy is for your family doctor. So your family doctor will know exactly what this expert is saying you need for your treatment going forward. Right. So it's a critical advantage that you get. Last one, guys, the top five mistakes your LTD lawyer should not make in handling your claim. This one is a big one. That's why we saved it for the end. Settling your case for much less than it's worth. 
So that really starts from the very beginning. And it's a good example of why it's critical to have someone who is experienced in disability law if you have a disability case. If you are hiring a lawyer that has a reputation as being someone who has a lot of experience in the field, knows what they're doing, and is going to play the case out as far as it needs to be played, then the other side is going to know that. And right out of the gate, the insurance company is going to set their reserves. And I I don't want to go into an explanation of what that means, but essentially that's the first thing the insurance the insurance company does to assess the value of the claim. And if that's assessed very low because they think the other lawyer doesn't know what they're doing, then you're going to have a very difficult time down the road. So that's the first thing. It's hiring someone the other side knows has experience. Um, but then it's all then it's also about preparation. So getting the medical reports that you need, making sure that you have all of the other clinical notes and records, and that you are going to present something to the other side that is coherent, makes sense, and is persuasive. Um, and so really that's what it comes down to. You have to start the process early and you have to make sure that the other side knows what you're there to do. And if you have all, the, all, all those things going in your favor, you're going to put yourself in a position to get the maximum amount of money that you can from the insurance company. Want to slide over to your emails after a short break? You want to send one along? Please do help it in your corner.ca to reach out 1 855 821 5900. And a reminder Global TV Sunday mornings at 8 30, you will catch in your corner the uh, televised version of this show as well. Janice, your email is first when we come back after a short break. This is In Your Corner on Global News Radio. Reaching out for In Your Corner is simple even when we are not on the air. For James Savan, member of the team, 1 855 821 5900. Help at inyourcorner.ca. First email of the show, guys, goes to Janice. Janice writes in, says, I was hoping you could help me or help a good friend of mine. I've listened to your show for a long time, and I really think that she needs help. She lives in Kingston. She was denied LTD in September 2017, and she went to a lawyer who said he could help, but nothing has happened for over a year and a half. I know that he kept asking for her medical documents, and then he was writing and calling the insurance adjuster, but nothing has happened. I'm thinking that maybe he's uh, maybe not the right lawyer for. Can he? Can she switch to you? Janice, the answer is yes, she can. Uh, I'm going to put a caveat on that. And the caveat is that we need to understand her relationship with that lawyer in terms of the billing arrangement. Uh, typically, lawyers charge by percentage. And when you leave them, then we have to discuss how we protect mm-hmm. their account. That said, the fact that this lawyer has been engaging the insurance company for a year and a half on a long-term disability claim and no legal claim has actually been issued, that is a major concern. Major concern for two reasons. Number one, I'm hoping that he's not going to miss the limitation period. That's number one, right? If you're engaging the insurance company and going through their appeals process, we talked about that at the beginning of the show, you may be at risk of missing that crucial two-year limitation period, at which case you cannot bring a legal claim. Or if you do, the insurance company can knock it out. The second reason why I'm concerned is that clearly this lawyer doesn't understand how the insurance company is playing their game. He's playing on their court right now. If he hasn't started a legal claim, it means that they have the advantage, they have the power, they have control. The whole point, the whole reason for this show, for James and I to come here every single week is to tell people that you can take that control and power away from the insurance company. As long as they maintain power and control, they are going to not pay you. It's that simple. Their goal at the end of the day is to shake you off claim. So Janice, my advice is this. After the show, put your friend in touch with us. Let us talk to her. It will cost her nothing to talk to us. We'll give her all the details that she understand, that, that, that she needs to understand in order to figure out 
where her claims is, uh, is, is at and, and what options she has in terms of moving if she wants to move. Uh, and, and, you know, she can take it from there. But it's absolutely crucial that we speak with her so we can give her the information she needs. And, and just so it's clear for anyone listening, it isn't as though anytime someone comes to see us that's at another, that has another lawyer that we're just going to say in every case, oh, yes, you should come to us. The decision is always up to the client, first of all. And second of all, the advice we give is always going to be focused on the client and getting the best result for the client. Because if you leave a lawyer that you're with, they're going to have to get paid. And the more work they've done, the more they're going to have to get paid. And so there are some cases where the client might like to switch lawyers, but the other lawyer has been on it so long that the their bill is going to be so significant that it's just too difficult. It's going to cost the client too much. And unless there is such a fundamental breakdown in the relationship between the lawyer and the client, it really doesn't make sense. And neither of us have any problem telling that to someone who comes to our office. But you can also come and talk to us. It's completely free. We're happy to do that. And if at the end of the day you decide that it doesn't make sense to switch, that's fine. There's no obligation coming to our office. What do you guys, just before we uh, before we uh, we break, what do you guys tell somebody who, who asks you that? Do you, you know, Savannah, say, hey, Savannah, Jim over here. Um, Jim, a little advice. Pick up the phone and deal with your client because they're calling me. I mean, you don't do that, do you? I mean, how do you get someone, to, a lawyer, to respond to that client because they're having no luck? Let, no. Me, let me let me actually uh, reference that. There, there's actually a, a situation that happened a few years ago uh, where somebody called me up and he had a very significant injury. And you know, the more the person is calling me and telling me about it, and and he tells me he has a lawyer, and he's describing what's happening with the case. I'm getting concerned with with you know the case, the fact that it's not moving, but. Right. I'm getting more concerned with the fact that this person is unable to reach that lawyer repeatedly. So eventually, uh, I can't stop myself, and I ask him, okay, tell me who this lawyer is, and it ended up being somebody that I know really well. And I told this person, I said, listen, this is a lawyer that I know. Uh, I've known him for a very long time. He's a good lawyer. You should stay with that lawyer. Uh, you are in good hands, and uh, <laughs> let me give that lawyer a call. And, and and so because I I know that lawyer is a good lawyer and and you know it just I'll tell you it did bother me I mean I'm saying he's a good lawyer but clearly that quality of not responding to the client that would irk me and frankly the client is very mm-hmm. was very right to be upset that should not happen but as a lawyer from from a skill standpoint he knows what he's doing but here you go here's an example of a situation where somebody comes to me and it just by fluke that I ended up knowing that lawyer. If I didn't know that lawyer, chances are that individual would have switched over to me and he had a great case. Right. For from my perspective, typically speaking, if we're talking about someone who it doesn't make sense for them to switch because it's going to be too expensive. Right. I'm not going to get involve myself unless the client really wants me to because then I'm creating a division between the lawyer and the client mm-hmm. that wasn't there before. If I insert myself now, the other lawyer knows that their client is talking to other people, right. and you know that might have a positive effect, but it might not, and I don't know what's going to happen with that. So I'm not going to do anything unless the client asks me to, but even then, my first instinct is going to be to advise this person coming to me to say, listen, you need to go back to your lawyer and make very clear what your expectations are, and tell them if they don't meet these expectations, then you're going to be looking for another lawyer and give them another opportunity to get their ducks in a row. They can't do it with those very clear expectations. Then it's probably time to find somebody else. Gotcha. We'll go back to your emails here after a short break. Ivan, you're up next. The email address, help at inyourcorner.ca. It is just that simple to reach out by phone anytime. 1-855-821-5900. This is In Your Corner.
on Global News Radio. 1-855-821-5900. That is the number to reach out, get a hold of the guys at the firm, or it is help at inyourcorner.ca. As promised, Ivan, your email is up next. Ivan says, guys, I was told last month that my long-term disability will stop for five months because I was let go from my job and I got severance. I did what you said on your show and looked through my policy in detail, and I didn't see anywhere where it said that the insurance company gets a credit for my severance. I even asked the adjuster uh, to show me the section that gives them the right to do it, and he couldn't point to one. He just said that is uh, is whatever they do in, in in every case. So there you go. What can I do about it? Well, first of all, I mean, that's garbage. If the adjuster <laughs> can't find um, the provision that entitles him to take money out of your pocket, then they can't do it. And so assuming you're still on claim, which it sounds like, I would actually bring a small claims action if the adjuster isn't going to respond to your request and then perhaps a written request from from myself. Um, it would be a small claims court action, presumably, because um, the amount of money would probably be less than $25,000 total. And so... You could bring a simple small claims court action, which will get their attention, and they'll probably pay before you have to do much else. So that's number one, and that's not particularly hard to deal with. But there's a couple more issues here. Um, first of all, we talk generally on the show about what you should expect and you know this change of definition, and, and that's what Ivan's talking about here. Um, it's the first two years that you're entitled to benefits that in most policies – says that you're entitled to the benefits as long as you are not able to do your own occupation. That is the way most policies are written. And then after two years, it's whether you can do any occupation. And so Ivan's issue here is that he's saying his insurance company um, is you know, telling him that it's any occupation right away, which is real unusual. But not impossible. So I'd want to take a look at the policy. Um, you know, each policy is its own contract, and if he happens to have one that's unusual, it's in theory possible that it works that way. But it would be the first time I've seen it, so I'd want to take a look and make sure. But he's quite right. Most policies do not work that way. Most most policies are the own occupation for two years, and then any occupation after. The last thing I think we really need to talk about here is that he was let go from his job while he was on disability, which is obviously a really big issue, and that creates the potential for a human rights claim against the employer. And that's why it's really critical when you're dealing with these issues, when you're dealing with disability issues and employment issues, that you have someone representing you that is capable of responding to both types of issues. And so that's why we have employment lawyers and disability lawyers at our firm, so that we can handle we can handle cases for clients that are facing these types of issues that overlap. And if you don't know how to deal with them, then you're going to have a problem because you're not going to maximize the total amount of both potential claims. What's going to happen is you're going to have a situation like this where you have the severance, and if you have a policy that entitles the insurance company to deduct it from what they have to pay, then you're going to lose out on that. But in a case like this where there's a potential for human rights damages, that wouldn't matter, at least to the extent that you get these human rights damages. So it's really critical that you have someone working for you that is really well-versed in both employment law and disability law. On the last point that James was making, I've seen cases, and I'm sure he has as well, uh, where the individual is getting long-term disability uh, by his employer or her employer, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's not an insurance company. I've seen this with banks, for example. Uh, I've had a bank, uh, a a situation with a lady who who, um, uh, had a traumatic event at a bank. She was a bank teller, and then she went on long-term disability, and then they cut her off. And what happened there is that the bank wanted to resolve both the long-term disability claim and her employment situation at the same time. 
Now let's reverse this for a second. Let's assume that uh, she she had an LTD claim, but she went to an employment lawyer because the bank was going to let her go. Yep. Imagine the employment lawyer doesn't know anything about long-term disability. Imagine the employment lawyer that then enters into a settlement or, or tells her to enter into a settlement with the bank with respect to her severance. Well, when you do a settlement like this, the, the agreement is that you get money and in exchange, you stop your legal claim and you sign a release, a document that protects the employer from any further legal claim. Well, you can have a situation where the employment lawyer doesn't know anything about the long-term disability claim. They get you to sign that release, and that release also releases Oops. the employer from any obligation to continue paying you disability payments. So you see, you can have a situation where if you go to a law firm or a lawyer that doesn't have a specialty in both areas of practice, and you are dealing with those two areas of practice, meaning that you have a disability claim, something ongoing, or something that is on the horizon, frankly, and an employment situation, you could be in a situation where you end up losing a lot of money because the lawyer you went to doesn't have all of right. the information and, and experience that you need to handle you know, the full scope of what you're dealing with. Global TV, that's where it happens Sunday mornings at 8.30. You will catch in your corner on TV. We'll take a break here, get back to more of your emails, one 821 5900 the number to reach out. Uh, when the show is not on the air here, either on TV or uh, on uh, on radio, help at inyourcorner.ca is the email address. We'll get another one after a short break. Hang on. This is In Your Corner on Global News Radio. It is help at inyourcorner.ca to send us an email along, one 821 5900 Tanika is up next, says, my sister was in an accident last year, not her fault. The other driver was charged with running a red light. She broke several ribs and her left knee. She works as a personal support worker, and now she can't. She initially went on EI sick leave, and when that ran out, she applied for LTD and was denied because the insurer said that she could do another job. First of all, that's not true. But second, I thought that the criteria is whether she can do her own occupation. Is that right? She appealed the denial, and then the insurer gave her a different reason for denying what she was that she uh, she didn't have enough medical proof for her disability. I don't understand why they're saying all that. She's very depressed now, and I'm trying to help her. Well, you know, Tanika, so first of all, thank you for contacting us on behalf of your sister. It's it's really important for people out there to understand that, you know, when we're giving out this information, it may not be relevant to you personally, but you may know someone who's been in an accident, somebody who's been injured, or somebody who's dealing with a long-term disability claim. So, you know, give them that information that we are uh, uh, giving out on the radio or give them our contact info, put them in touch with us. Now, Tanika, with your sister's situation, it's a fairly uh, interesting situation, very unfortunate for her, but interesting in that we're dealing not only with a car accident, but a long-term disability uh, issue here as well. Let's start off from the car accident briefly. Again, back to basics. If you're involved in a car accident in Ontario, whether or not it's your fault, if you're injured, you're entitled to accident benefits from your insurance company, your auto insurance company. Or if you don't have auto insurance, then from the auto insurer of the vehicle that caused the accident, that, that you know caused you injuries. Uh, now, in the case of uh, Tanika's sister, she's going to be entitled to medical rehabilitation benefits. If she can't work, which of course she can't because she was applying for LTD, she's going to be entitled to income replacement benefits. So there's a whole slew of benefits that she could potentially be entitled to from her own auto insurer. But she also has a potential legal claim against whoever caused the accident. Remember, the accident wasn't her fault. 
So what does that entail? Well, it entails a legal claim for compensation for pain and suffering, for future income losses, past income losses, and a whole slew of other types of compensation, which you know, we can have a whole show just on this. So it's very important to understand she has two claims potentially arising just from the car accident itself. Then there is the long-term disability claim. And James talked about that on the last segment in terms of some policies could be a bit different. But generally speaking, long-term disabilities are structured in this way. For the first two years to qualify for LTD, you have to demonstrate through medical reports, medical opinions, that you cannot do your own occupation. Beyond the two-year mark, the test then expands. The question is, can you do any occupation for which you have training, education, or experience? And the fact that she was told, the insurer told her to Tanika's sister uh, that uh, uh, she was denied because uh, she could do another job, meaning another occupation during that first two years, that doesn't ring right for me. So I would want to see the LTD policy. It seems very, very strange to me that that's the position the insurance company is taking. Uh, so that's the first thing. I would want to see the LTD policy. Uh, this, the, the, the last thing that I would say here, before I'm sure James is going to get in there, uh, is that there is an interplay here between the benefits or the various insurance policies that are going to be involved through the car accident case and the long-term disability case. So again, you want to make sure that whichever law firm or lawyer you are consulting in a situation like this, you want to make sure that you are going to a law firm or a lawyer that has a focus and have knowledge and experience in all of these areas of law, disability, car accident, potential employment law, again, all the stuff that our lawyers deal with. It's very important because you have someone that only knows about car accidents, but not LTD, you're potentially going to get undercompensated here, potentially. And the same thing if the person only knows LTD, but not car accident legislation, automobile legislation here in Ontario. So very, very important to understand, you have a whole slew of benefits. Tanika, your sister may be entitled to a lot of money here, but it's important to play this right. One thing I really do want to add. Now, we every, every single show that we do, every radio show, every TV show, at some point we talk about appeals. And this is a really good example of why we do that. What we tell you every single time is doing the appeal, the appeal that the insurer is inviting you to do, is not going to get you anywhere. It's just going to be a waste of time because the insurance company, their only interest is in generating as high profits as they can for the shareholders. That's it. That's the only thing that they are focused on. They do that by taking in more premiums and by paying out less benefits. Once they've made the decision to deny your claim or cut off your benefits, it is very difficult to get them to change that. That is how they make their money. And this is a perfect example. So Tanika here you know, has what is obviously a very legitimate claim. She's a personal support worker. She's broken several bones. She's got a knee injury. That's just not a job you're going to be able to do. And you know, I, unless we're wrong about it, it's, you know, it's, not own, it's not any occupation in the first two years. It's own occupation. And so she appeals. And so what do they do? Well, they know that their first reasoning is completely bogus, <laughs> that there's no basis to support it. So they go with, you know, the old tried and true, not enough medical documentation. Please, please. We're talking about objective injuries here. If they have the hospital records, they have enough information. They're just not going to change their opinion. You can appeal as many times as you like. Won't make a difference. They have the control. And unless you show them that you're serious about challenging them, unless you are willing to bring a legal claim, they are not going to change their position. It's as simple as that. And it doesn't matter how many times you appeal, does it? doesn't make it any better. Well, it does matter because the more times you appeal, 
the longer it's going to take for you to get a resolution and the more likely you are to miss that two-year window to yeah. bring your claim. And if that happens, sorry, you're out of luck. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And the other thing is that people are in financial uh, uh, dire straits, of course, right? Yeah. I mean, they're in a situation where they, they, they literally have no money coming in. And insurance companies understand that, and they're applying pressure on you by doing that. And, you know, by, by in fact, uh, being out there and, and playing their game, uh, you're in a much weaker position than if you were to do exactly what we're telling you, which is, start to, you know, to start a legal claim. That's how you force their hand. That's how you force them to come to the table. That's it for this week, guys. You want to reach out, 1-855-821-5900. Help at inyourcorner.ca. That is the email address we use. And Sunday morning, 8.30 on Global TV, you will catch a televised version of In Your Corner. Looking forward to that as well. Till next time, this has been In Your Corner on Global News Radio.